Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. I'm a journalist and author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. A cancer survivor so far. I gotta have faith. If you're a guy who spent every Sunday morning of his life in church for six decades, what does it mean to have all of it? All of it put to the test. Did it help? Did it change anything? I was really, really sick. Did I have a prayer? Episode 7. I Gotta Have Faith. I began every morning with 2,000 milligrams of a chemotherapy drug that made me really sick. I knew it was going to make me sick. I also knew, standing by myself in the kitchen, that if I threw the pills in the toilet and flushed them down, nobody would know but me. In places in the world where food isn't always in sufficient supply, but large numbers of people are suffering from diseases where the drugs make you feel sick, DOT, Directly Observed Therapy, is the gold standard. That is, making a patient go someplace to get their pills, and then having them take them while a doctor or nurse or pharmacist watches. Here I was, in a row house in an American city, fridge stuffed with food, some of the world's most expensive high-tech medical care just a few minutes from my front door. And now, my cancer treatment came down to me doing the right thing, doing what I was supposed to do, even though no one was watching. It was an act of faith. I wanted to stay alive. Like anybody, I didn't want my life to end if it was possible to save it. Some of the few people I had told I had cancer told me in return, I'm praying for you, or you're in my prayers. It's part of the social grease, the lubricant that keeps us meshing with each other. A kindness, really. But now that I was the one being prayed for, I had to think a little bit more carefully about all that and chemoed up and weak, sitting on the couch watching British crime dramas, I was not, for the moment, that guy who was running through life at breakneck speed without time to think about those things because I was just so busy. I'm a church person. I've been one all my life. I've taught Sunday school, served on the elected lay leadership of my own church. I took all my children with me to church every week of their lives unremarkably, modestly, just getting on with my life in a way that suited me. But now, here I was, faced with the big questions. If someone includes my troubles in their prayers, does that make any difference? If I ask for healing in my own prayers, would it change anything, in any way, ever? If I was dying, what would become of me? In light of everything I've been taught and everything I thought I believed, would the faith stand up against the current crisis? My home in Philadelphia was exactly equidistant between congregations of my own church. One was struggling, having trouble keeping the building in repair and clergy paid. The other was one of the pillars of my church in the United States, a national historic landmark, a well-resourced place with a full staff and services. 
If I was well, I would have locked arms with the communicants in the struggling congregation and joined with them in the work of keeping the doors open. The sick me couldn't offer much in the way of joining the struggle. I needed to be looked after. So, off to the established place I went. At this particular point in my life, it was the right decision. One Sunday morning, I swallowed my pills, washed them down, got in the car, and headed the two miles to church. Readings from the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, are part of every service. This week, we were at the point in the constantly renewing cycle of readings that featured the story of Job. To give you the basics, Job was a faithful man, a prosperous man, looked down on from the great beyond by God and an angel, who fall to arguing over the nature of Job's faith. The angel says, basically, it's easy to be faithful when everything's going your way. Nice possessions, nice family. Why wouldn't Job be faithful? God answers, basically, that Job's the real deal, that it's not his good fortune that's made him a faithful man. To test the proposition, God allows the angel to take everything from Job, his family, his wealth, his physical health. Visited with terrible sufferings, Job has philosophical arguments with his friends about the things that are happening to him. But he doesn't budge. He regrets the day he was born, but he never blames God for his sufferings. To me, it's a fable. I think of it as a foundational story of Jewish and Christian tradition, but I've never believed that God and an angel basically laid bets on making a real man's life terrible in order to check whether he was sincere. And at the same time, there I was, sitting in a pew, exhausted and sick, still quite conscious of the long scar running down my belly, feeling the throbbing in my hands and feet, and reassured, somehow, that this was the right place for me to be, that I was exactly where I belonged, that I was sitting in one of those places that I made sense to myself. Now, my family was fine, everybody very much alive and kicking, while my career was unraveling after my last full-time gig as a TV news anchor, I had the backing and security that comes from savings and a house, and if I lived long enough, a secure retirement. No, I wasn't Job. But right then, in that moment, I smiled, thinking of the timing that had Job be the reading that particular morning, and I landed here. Job's friends, as his life collapses, basically tell him that he's made a bad deal, that for all his faithfulness, if these bad things were happening to him, what was the point? You do good and your reward is injustice? Unfairness? Suffering? Job scolds his friends. He's aware he didn't do something to deserve what was happening to him. The whole God business is not such a simple transaction. Yup, Job was right. If I bailed out on church, if I came to the conclusion that prayer was dumb because I prayed and had no job and chemo in my veins anyway, then I'd be Job's friends. Better, I figured, to be Job. I sat up a little straighter in my pew. And the people praying for me? 
well, I didn't have an answer. And at the same time, I was, unexpectedly, lifted up, buoyed, helped to remain standing by the people who said they were praying for me. When I gave a talk at my home church in Washington about what I was going through, a group of my church brothers and sisters got up, laid hands on me while the priest prayed for my recovery and health. Again, like an energy transfusion, I was lifted up by the care these people had for me. Would a cancer cell become a not-cancer cell somewhere in my body because these people were praying for me? I don't know. Probably no. But the power of their faith and the depth of their decency, their hope for my life, was unexpectedly powerful and fortifying. Am I telling you that this is what you ought to do? No. Am I trying to tell you to join the church? No. What I am telling you is that if you're standing outside that world and not sure you understand the value of it, why people give their allegiance to it, maybe even have a little contempt for or irritation with it, it's just one man's story of how it works for him. That's all. It's the habit of mind, the habit of heart, and the teaching of a lifetime that put a rudder on my boat when I was in danger of drifting dangerously off course. I would never in a hundred years tell you that the reason I'm not dead is because I'm religious. But I could never for a second deny that what religion gave me over the long haul made the unbearable a little more bearable gave me a handbook, offered some propositions about the world and my place in it that were a comfort that I needed right then and there. I didn't approach this believing that a person with no religion, going through the exact same thing, was more likely to die. I didn't think a non-religious person wouldn't be able to find strength and comfort from other sources. But this is where I found it. It was what I needed when I needed it. Research from Duke University, looking at the trajectories of about 90 seriously ill patients, showed that the most religious among them recovered more quickly from the depression that accompanies serious medical conditions. It wasn't even a close call. Using what the study called intrinsic religiosity, based on a 100-point scale, they found that for every 10-point increase in religious faith, there was a 70% increase in the speed of recovery from depression. Among the sickest patients, it was even faster. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave.
During chemo, I made one of my rare trips outside Philadelphia to give an annual lecture at a seminary in Texas. One of the senior officials of the school picked me up at the airport, and in one of those reminders of how different places in the country still are different from each other, he just straight up asked me whether and how religion was factoring in my recovery. We had known each other for about 30 seconds. I had thought about it some, but I hadn't had to put it into words for anybody else yet. I told him I was like a ship, being kept upright in the water by the ballast that religion had provided me. Then, as now, I was thinking through what it meant for people far away to ask the God I believe in to heal me. But I didn't doubt for a second that what I had been taught was food for the journey, sustenance for a sick man. When my sweet nurse at the chemo center would apologize every time before puncturing my skin to begin dripping healing poison into my bloodstream, and that terrible sensation would begin. I could leave myself, leave my sick, sorry self on the recliner, and travel in my thoughts. I had no idea when and whether I was going to be all right. I could not be sure whether this was simply a futile attempt to postpone an inevitable outcome, whether this suffering had a point. I wanted to live I loved my life, but not so much that I would do anything to keep it. What religion had done for me so far was to suggest a way of looking at, a way of understanding the world that equipped me for this very moment. A 19th century Chicagoan, Horatio Spafford, had lost a four-year-old son to illness had lost his material world, been ruined by the destruction of the Great Chicago Fire. Later, when he was supposed to go to France with his family, he was detained in Chicago and sent them all on ahead. All four of his daughters died when their ship, the Ville du Havre, sank after colliding with another vessel. Spafford was a 19th century Job, but in real life rather than in a fable. And he reached down into himself and found the strength to write the famous words to a hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's kind of where I ended up. In the midst of serious setbacks in life and career, I was now really, really sick. It helped to know I had a soul, to conclude that all I could see wasn't all there was, that there were things moving and happening in the universe beyond my abilities to name and describe them, and that whatever happened, it is well, it is well with my soul. Your mileage may vary. I get it. This is what the lessons of a lifetime meant for one guy sitting in an oncology unit in Philadelphia, hoping for the best, and ready, if that's what came, for the worst. Thanks for listening to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I was well aware that unlike old Job, I didn't lose everything. So far, 
I was lucky and ended up feeling like I was lucky to drop an anchor in church. Chemo continues. I continue to grit my teeth and voluntarily take my poison. These aren't the things I would have chosen to happen to me, but they are the things that happened, as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Maybe even you, or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. Somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. In the next episode, Prognosis and Prospects, I look at cancer itself, what the numbers say about someone in my condition, and what they say more broadly about the thousands of Americans who get the bad news every year. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.